Good morning, documented listeners. I just want to say thank you. We have over 27 five-star reviews. I truly appreciate the DMs, the letters, the messages, and the comments we're getting from you. We have some really exciting upcoming miracles that we are documenting. Maybe it's your very first time stumbling upon this podcast. What we do here on Documented is we find miracles of salvation, of healing, of intervention, and financial miracles, and we document them because we believe that Jesus Christ is still alive and he's working today and he cares about individual people. And we are here to document that truth. And so we're so glad that you're here. Please give us your feedback. If there's anything that inspires you or helps you, please share it with people. Make sure to leave your review. We really appreciate it. And this morning, I'm really looking forward to interviewing Nancy Beswick. Her and her husband are like icons of the East Coast. And I'm so excited to just dive into her story and just hear about the miracle of intervention and the miracle of salvation in her life. Without further ado, we could just start off with an introduction of who you are and how you met Christ. I'm living in Massachusetts. My husband's a pastor. Uh, We're in Chicopee, Massachusetts, which I'm just going to say like an hour and a half away from Boston. And we've been here for 10 years now. I have three beautiful kids, a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law, because the first two are married. And then I have two beautiful grandsons. It's so much fun. It's like you don't have to have any rules. And um, (laughs) it's exhausting because these little boys have so much energy. But it's actually, it's just, it is. It's like a dream. What, What ages are they? Five and seven. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's amazing. So you're a mom and a grandma. Tell us about your testimony. I'm just going to start off with an overview. I was born in New York. I was actually put up for adoption from a very, you know, right from the start. And so I was adopted into this really wonderful family. My parents were older and they just wanted children so badly. So I just, I was really, I was just in the best home. But when I was very small, like four or five, some very bad things happened, unfortunate that, you know, when, you know, my, my parents didn't know this was happening to me. So I can remember being four years old and feeling shattered, broken, like I'm not okay. There's something really wrong with me. Some of my earliest memories are like, I'm not, I'm not okay. And I'm different. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. So then I, you know, I just went through just school, like I just was a little happy kid, but deep inside, I just kept feeling like, I I don't know, I just, I I guess I'd say I put up a front. So I went through high school, I wanted to just be popular, just wanted to have fun. I was really kind of doing a lot of risk taking behaviors all, you know, all through my teenage years. When I was 15, a girl in high school, she was a cheerleader, and she was so wild. One day she became a Christian, like overnight she was changed and it was very obvious. It was like, wow, what in the world just happened? And she told me about her conversion. She told me that she knew that God was real, that Jesus was coming back. She told me all this cool stuff and she, she began to share the like things out of the Bible with me. And I would, I just went, oh my gosh, Jesus loves me. Like all this, like it was I just was so excited to hear this. But unfortunately, after I heard the truth, she didn't bring me to church. You know, I I didn't really know what to do next. It was almost like it was just this brief encounter. And then I, I lost sight of Jesus. Like, it's like he 
he wasn't at, in, on my horizon anymore. And all of a sudden I plunged even deeper into just my emptiness, almost like, wait, did that even really happen? At this point, had you shared with anybody what happened to you as a kid? Yes. I, I finally realized when I was like nine or 10, I remember riding with my mom in the car and, and finally realizing like, that wasn't okay. What happened to me? And, um, I told her and she, she just went into mama bear mode. Like she just, just went ahead and just did whatever she could to make sure that would never happen again. It was, she tried to fix it. You know, she just like, was like, no, that is not okay that that happened to you. It's not your fault. You know, she's just like an amazing Mm -hmm. mom, but the damage had already been happening. Like I, so I knew my parents were amazing people. They were really, really like, we could talk about stuff. So that was really good, but they couldn't fix any of this stuff. Yeah. And also because I was adopted, it's so interesting to me. I I'm really drawn to kids that are adopted now because I just feel like it's all, it's like almost like a fairy tale that God could go, you, I'm going to put you in this, in this family. And he, he really handpicked my family. I know he did, but I still felt like, who am I? Hmm. Like, I, I'm not quite like these, this wonderful couple. Like I'm so different from them. I was this crazy artist person and wild and they're so you know good and just upstanding and structured and I'm not I was just like wild and um I just I did really want to find out who I you know I you know that was another question in my life which maybe was part of why I was searching too at what age did you find out you were adopted I always knew I was adopted okay and that was the smartest thing my parents ever did was that from the minute I was adopted, they would read us these stories. They adopted again a year later. And so I have a a little sister and they would read us these books that said, what does adopted mean? It was like, you're chosen. So I, I always thought my parents like walked into a hospital and they're like looking at all the babies, looking them over closely. And then like that one, that's the one we want. I just felt super special from that they had chosen us and it was a choice. So, so it was just part of my identity and I was grateful about that, but, um, but it still left you with some questions of, of who you were and, and yeah. searching. Yeah. Yeah. So I went through, um, like I said, after I, after I realized like when I was in a, in teen, my teenage years, I started to get into drinking, into partying really, really, really hard. When I went off to college, it just got worse. It was like, now there's not, you don't even have any parental supervision. And, and I was just like set free to just be insane. And unfortunately, all those things that I began to do, like just way too much, way too much, too many drugs, no boundaries in my life. So I was really not doing well in school. I was just carrying like the burden of a lot of my choices, a lot of disastrous choices. And I finally just decided I just couldn't do it. And I dropped out of school. I went away for a a bit on a bus. I was like, I'm going to go on a little trip. Just I need a break. And I met a guy who was becoming a he has he was checking out of of the mainstream life, you know, and he was becoming a Buddhist and he was going to go to a monastery in California, a Buddhist monastery. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's truth. Maybe that's what's missing in my life. So I went home, packed up my stuff, and I went to California, like hitchhiking, taking buses. My parents are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I'm like, I can't explain it to you. I have to find truth. So 
I went to the Buddhist monastery and I looked really hard and I did not find truth there. <laughs> Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah. So I, um, I was really open. Like, I'm like, okay, here I am. Just tell me everything. Teach me whatever I need to know. I just immersed myself in this. I, I guess I, I just gave everything. I gave, I gave it my all. I gave it my best shot. And I, I was shocked because I found out that to become enlightened, you'd actually, you empty yourself. I was like, oh no, I already am empty. I don't want to be emptier. That's not what I'm do, trying to do here. That's the whole point. That was the whole, I went, oh shoot. I was about 19 and I said, this isn't working. My parents were like, why don't you come back home? You know, maybe you can find a college, go to school for art or something. So I came home and I, I really in my heart believed I had given everything. I'd been searching and it wasn't just California. It was all different things that I had done to search for truth and to search in just different kinds of philosophies, religions, relationships, different things I had given myself to. And I went, okay, apparently there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. And I'll just make my life whatever I feel like. And so I went back to um, college in, in New York City now, and it was for advertising design in Manhattan at FIT. And I threw myself into it and I did really well. And I said, you know, almost like whatever, apparently life is just, you do whatever, you get a job, you do your best, you make a lot of money and then you die. And that's what I really, really said. That's the only way I can have peace now is because I have looked everywhere for the answer to why am I here? And I'm not finding it. So apparently there's no answer. And that's when I felt like I was just putting up a facade. It just really, it didn't really matter about that cry in my heart anymore. I was 20 by that time. And one of my friends had gotten saved and invited me to visit. My friend said, why don't you come visit for spring break? And I heard, you know, party. But really, that's not what was involved. We went to this little storefront church. And it was a concert on a Saturday night, and they were so happy. These people were so happy. And I said, this is so different. I'm not expecting to find peace in this little little storefront church. I'm finding that these people have joy, and they have something that I haven't been able to find without maybe a lot of drugs involved. <laughs> just a, a sense of like the, they had just like this awesome freedom and joy. And at the end of the night, they did an invitation. They said, if anyone wants to know if God is real and you want to ask him into your heart, raise your hand. And I just, I said, I, I thought I shut the door on this, but this maybe is, is what I've been looking for. And so I, I responded and I went to the altar and I, I didn't even believe I was a sinner anymore. I didn't believe even in sin. Like I was like, no, I'm just a human that makes choices. But I said, God, whatever I have to do to know you, help me to, to know if you're real. And that's kind of my prayer. And I felt like he touched my life right then. That just was a just huge shift for me. Now, when I went back to, to New York City, I just went, I don't, I don't think I need to keep up this facade. I don't need to keep pretending that um, all that matters is the outside. Jesus loves me for the inside. He even loves the broken me. He loves the part of me that's not okay. And I just felt him drawing me to himself. I just felt like I want to get to know God more. 
it was a process. There was, there was like that instantaneous moment when I was like, oh my gosh, if this is true, if God is real, then he's, and if he's everything that's in the Bible, like if that's who Jesus is, like I'm going to, it's, he loves me. It's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Like there was that like instantaneous peace, but the process to get delivered of all of my choices and the, the, the consequences in my mind, my mind wasn't stable. My mind was, I just really, really had gone through all kinds of depression and all kinds of like emotional, like trauma. So that did take time. That took a lot of just lots of people praying for me, lots of people, you know, would there be a revival, somebody would lay hands on me and pray for me. And I would just let God just take whatever, just do some kind of surgery on my heart. That did definitely took time. I, I hear this a lot from people. So I'm just curious what your advice would be. If there's someone who knows they had an encounter with Christ, they came to church, they got saved or they got saved at an outreach, but they're realizing that they still have a lot of struggles from their past life or decisions they made. What was the key to you getting sanctified? It's like God takes you just as you are. And then he doesn't leave you that way. What was the key for the the change? The number one key, honestly, was to stay connected. I never would miss church. I just never would miss church. I I don't, I can't say I read the Bible every day in the beginning. <laughs> I yeah, can't say sure. that I didn't even really, really learn how to really pray over my, you know, my situations very well. Like that was all like learning, but I never missed church. I just always was in church and I stayed connected to friends. Um, I started to build relationships with my pastor and his wife. I just went, I need all sorts of stuff that I don't know what I need. So I'm just going to be here. Now I had finished the semester and I said, oh, well, I would like to know more about God. I want to learn more about God. And I don't have a church here. And I, and doors were shutting for me for the summer. I didn't get an internship or I didn't have, just things were shutting and open doors were opening for me to, to actually visit Cape Cod for the summer, which is the beach. Like who doesn't want to go there? So I said, you know what? I, I'll go. I was not averse to going and spending the summer by the ocean and learning about God and going to church. And I, so I just thought I was just kind of doing a side thing for the summer. So I went and I, that's when I began to go to church. I just went to church, like I said, all the time. I just began to develop really good friendships, really good relationships. I felt like I was really growing. And I, by the end of the summer, I just knew that God was not done with me and I needed to stay. So I also at that time didn't want to even go back to what I was doing before. By now, I just was like, no, I want, I want to see what God has for my life. I want to, I want to just, this is something that is real. And this is, this is what I was, I've been searching for. So why would I leave now? I kept going to church. I, I met a really nice man in church. He was, he was, he really felt a call of God on his life. He wanted to, to be a pastor. We started to date and we dated and got married in um, 1988. So I was 24 and everything was great. I just was just loving just what God was doing. And we had a beautiful little baby, little beautiful curly haired baby. So exciting. And when she was four months old, my husband got diagnosed with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. 
which was kind of a rare cancer. And, and I, like I said, right then I was probably maybe 25 and I was just like, do you mind bringing us back to that day? Do you remember that day? And, and what, what caused the concern for you guys to check and see if he was all right? We were at a second story apartment. So we were always going up and down the stairs. We had just had a baby. She was four months old and he was losing weight. So it was like, well, maybe I'm not cooking. I don't know. It was just kind of chaotic because we had this newborn and finally he just went to the doctor because he was tired and he was losing weight, which sound didn't sound really like we were young. We didn't know that those were warning signs of an advanced cancer. But when he went to the doctor, it was very full blown. It had actually been present in his body for probably a couple of years by then. So it was very advanced already by then. How long had you guys been married? Oh, then we'd only been married um, probably a year and a half. Okay. Maybe a little bit longer. You find out this news, were you with him? No, I think I was at home with the baby. I don't, I don't think I did. I can't even remember. It was, it's kind of a blur, but I do remember sure. after when he told me, I just remember being like, I can't, I can't do that. I don't know how to do, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Like as if you have get to have a choice. Yeah, sure. And we were in a, you know, kind of a beachy area. And so the, every, every single person would say, you've got to go to Boston for the best care. They are the best doctors in the world. You know, you've got to go there. So that's a, that's a two hour each way commute all the time. And just the logistics were immediately like overwhelming Mm -hmm. and we don't have any money. You know, we're just like, we don't have, we we do not have any kind of experience in life to be able to tackle this kind of thing Mm -hmm. now that's on our plate. And you're a brand new mom and that's not a light thing either. Right. Cause you're figuring out how to be a mom and a wife. And now this, right. That's, how did he take it? Was it something that sunk in for him? Oh, he was super courageous. He was just a, he was a, just a great man to um, say, well, well I'm, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight this. I have a lot to live for. I have a lot to, to, um, there's a huge motivation to beat this cancer. So he just threw himself into getting the best treatment. And actually, Melissa, I have this little picture. This is our, um, our wedding anniversary. I believe this would have been like our second wedding. anniversary. And he's bald now. See the sunset. We're in Boston. Yeah. Baby right there is nine months old. Oh my gosh. And we're just like smiling because we're just, believe in God to help us. Oh my God. But what's horrible is this night was, I remember this because right after this, I got home, he stayed in the hospital. He was in the hospital for weeks at that point. I drove home to Cape Cod two hours that night. The baby was warm. I'm like, well, it's hot. It's June. But I, when she woke up in the morning, she had a fever. So I called my doctor and he was such a great doctor. He goes, well, bring her in. You know, every baby gets a fever, but he's like, what's going on with your family right now? Cause he knew my husband had cancer and I told him and he said, don't go anywhere. I want to call the doctor in Boston to find out what's wrong with your husband. So at that time, my husband had, he had homophilus influenza B, which is called HIV, which babies get immunized for that now before nine months. But my daughter back then, they didn't, they didn't do your immunizations for that right away. So she actually had contracted that while she was visiting him and she ended up in the hospital 
that afternoon, she was, you know, in the little stainless steel crib for a week. She had to have a spinal tap. She had a, she was like hospitalized. So he's in the hospital in Boston. She's in the hospital in Cape Cod, Hyannis, Cape Cod. And I'm just like, how? Oh my help. gosh. This is so hard. And then my poor husband. So when he's coming home from the hospital, he had to take a bus. Oh and I had to send gosh. someone to pick him up on the bus to come to the hospital in Hyannis because I couldn't go get him. And I had the car. It's just like, this is our life. It just was always like that. That whole year was like that. It just like, and I never thought I'd have my infant in a, in the mm. hospital for, you know, with all these tubes, mm. it was just scary. Like she, she could have died. He could have died. And I'm just like, I don't, I'm not equipped for this. I don't even know how to handle this. This must've impacted you guys financially as well. It was horrible. <laughs> we had, we had no money, no money. And I don't even, oh my gosh. It, it Yeah, it was, we didn't. We didn't have any resources for this. Church was a huge support. There were always people who would say, can we help you? Can we drive you? Can we give you a ride? Can we babysit? Can we make a meal? That was amazing. And during this time, I think it was about a year like that. It was about a year when um, finally Dave's doctors told him he was in remission. So his job had held his position. So he went back to work. Uh, We found a, you know, we just started to find our footing again. And we were starting to just build back our trying to build back our life. And I was really idealistic. And I said, oh, my gosh, yay, he's in remission. Let's, you know, pray we have another baby. And nothing, you know, it didn't happen. I remember saying to God, if, it, if everything's going to be OK, I really just pray that I could have another baby. And months went by and I wouldn't. And um And so I decided that I wasn't going to keep praying that after like, like then about another few months went by and things were starting to happen, but I didn't want to face it. My my husband didn't want to face it, but it was time to go back to the doctor. I don't think we even had health insurance anymore now at this time. So we were like, well, we can't really go to the doctor. So I talked to my pastor and he said, no, you, you should go to the doctor, take him to the doctor. We'll pay for it if you need us to. We went to the doctor again, and now they found that the cancer had come back a lot. And it was mm. now there was there were no more options for treatment except the most extreme, which was a kind of experimental a, bit, a bone marrow transplant back then, which was 1992. Did not have very good success rate for survival, but that was the only option that they had left if they could find a donor. So how long had you been saved? Yeah, so I'm 27. And- save seven years. Okay. Did you have a confidant during his sickness? Like, was there someone who was your person or was it just mostly all the people in church? Was it your pastor? Yeah. Okay. So what's cool is Melissa, I have my little journal here from 1992. Oh my gosh. I love it. And I have, I have a record of, of when I would go to my pastor, what he would say, I have a record of like, like the, some of the timeline it's probably why I can remember it so well because, and I, I um, Mona Warner was a huge help to me. She had gone through so much with Pastor Harold and she constant, she would write me these cute little notes. Look, I still have them. She would write me these little letters. There's a pig on this one. Um, and she would make me laugh. Aww. And 
she gave me so much good advice. Uh, I really How did you like know I, Mona? My pastor introduced me. He said, I want you to talk to her because you're going to be going through some things that not a lot of people have mm-hmm. the resources to um, minister to those things. It, yeah. I didn't even know anyone who had ever even, I mean, maybe one or two people who had had cancer in their family and wow. not, not somebody whose husband at, you know, at this age was going through that. So she was really a huge help. I could call her anytime and she would just make me laugh and she would give me really good advice. When the cancer came back, was there throughout all of it, was there always a fear that you could potentially lose him or was it something that you didn't let your mind go there? That's a great question. First of all, I wasn't, even my church was like a newer church. And so we didn't know anyone who really died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like, and nobody talked about it because it did seem like you didn't have faith if you would. I did not saying that that was like everybody, but in my little life, my 28 year old life, people didn't die. So you didn't really. And if you talked about it, like how awkward would that be? Like, Dave, let's talk about this. If you die, it just seemed like I'm trying to have faith for him. So I don't want him to know that there, there is that possibility in my mind. But Mona, again, she was so cool. She's like, she was the only person who said to me one time, I remember we were in a park and she was, we were sitting on a blanket at a concert and she, I was visiting in Tucson and she said, so what would you do if Dave died? And I was like, oh, you said this word. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You said die. I don't know. I don't even she said, well, why don't you just think about it? Why don't you just think about that for, you know, just in case? And it, it, it was sanity, truthfully, because then in my, you know, my private time with God and, you know, and just talking, even to Dave, I started, we started to go, well, it's probably not going to happen. But if it did happen, you could do this. You could do this. You could look into that. You could have a roommate. You could, you know, just like all these options. And so as that began to, to, um, just almost like it was something that I had to have filter into my mind slowly over time. I started to go the worst case scenario. I'd still have Jesus. It would be, he would take care of us. So I started to think that way before he got really, before he went in for the bone marrow transplant, which was um, starting around the turn of when the new year started turning into 1993, he was preparing to go. And at that time, Though I have to say, at that time, I was really exhausted. Now, we're, we were doing all these preps. Mm-hmm. There's so many preparations for a bone marrow transplant because you don't just go in the hospital and come home the next day. Months, you're in the hospital. And then when you come home, oh, you can't just live goodness. in a regular house. Like, you can't have any mold. You can't have any dust. You have to, your immune system is gone. And so it was like, oh, no. And I have a three-year-old and whatever. Oh, Suddenly, goodness. I'm so exhausted, overwhelmed you know, just, I'm start. So at that point, I just started to feel like tired, so tired. And one day I just went, wow, when the heck did I last have my period? I was like four months pregnant by then. I didn't even notice. So surprise, God was so funny, Melissa. I just went, wait, God, I just suddenly remembered that prayer that I said, if everything's going to be okay, let me have a baby. And I'm like, Oh, this is a miracle, but this is not what I meant by okay. 
let me define okay. It's not this. But anyway, this is this. So now we've just added a little bit more excitement to this. My story. Well, I'm pregnant now. I was excited that I was pregnant because I knew it was a miracle. I knew that there, the chances of us being pregnant were like zero. He was supposed to be sterile. At one point during the chemo, I specifically remember the nurses saying, if you ever want to have any more kids, you're going to, you should consider freezing and doing sperm, you know, put a sperm bank, whatever. And we were just like, I don't think we can do that right now. And so we didn't. And so then it was, you, you know, like, it's almost like you just took your body and put it through a nuclear war. It's not really very, uh, it's not the best. Sure. No, I understand. Yep. And, um, and I just will throw this in there. I do remember a nurse saying to me, you're pregnant. You really need to reconsider that pregnancy. You need to consider if you want that to go all the way, you guys need to have that discussion. I remember that. I remember sitting on the couch with Dave who has no hair. Now we're just like, not the, the dream couple here. We're just sitting there crying. And I said, you know, this is what the nurse at the hospital just told me. And he said, that's so not an option. And I said, I know we just had, she just told us to have this conversation and we said, whatever. And you know, a spoiler alert, my son is super healthy. (laughs) So a miracle. He's just like very vibrant. So, but that's, that's amazing. That's jumping ahead. Okay. You were telling me about this moment of overwhelm. Okay. So now I'm just completely, just, uh, just emotionally, like I have never had so much weighing on me, like just emotional stress, like an intolerable amount of overwhelm. I just didn't even know how to cope. I'm depressed. I have anxiety probably. I didn't, I don't, I don't even know what an anxiety attack, if that was what it was, but whatever it was, our, our marriage was fraying because we didn't have, we couldn't give to each other anymore. It was just like survival, so much survival. Mm-hmm. My poor husband is trying to fight, you know, to live. And I'm just like, I'm going to be honest. I began to feel a ton of self-pity. Like just that, it just was, you know, looking back, I can say that at the time I didn't, you know, at the time, even I even have people telling me, you poor thing, this is so hard. And I'd be like, yeah, I know poor me, poor me, just me, me, me. You know, I just kept looking at my situation and how hopeless it was and how I just didn't see that it was going to get any easier overnight. And I just, I I was very focused on myself and I began to, I, I was just talking about how much my life sucked. I would say that like to my poor husband, I'd be like, my life sucks. And he'd go, um, what about my life? my life is kind of hard, Nancy, (laughs) poor thing. He was like, you know, so I remember at one point driving and that's in my journal too. I just, I went out driving and I just was, I just cried out to God. I can remember where I was. I can remember saying, God, you have to do something. And I don't even know what I need you to do, but we can't go on like this. Like, this is not what you have for us. I, I don't know what I need you to do, but I need you to, to, to do something. I need you to show up and help us. I think I went home and a very short time after that, during that same afternoon, my pastor called and just in a, he didn't call us every day, but just in a regular conversation, it kind of came about and he, um, 
he just started to say to me, you know what, you gotta fight, you gotta, um, and how you handle this is how Dave's gonna be able to, to draw strength. And if he sees you just not be able to do this, he's gonna not be able to wanna do this either. And, but when he was saying that, he was saying it gently, he was saying it so kindly, but I was feeling like God was speaking through him to me in, in my heart of hearts. I was feeling like God was saying, you need to stop feeling sorry for yourself and you need to look to me and just find things to thank me for and be grateful for in this season. And I, I'm not saying it was an audible voice. I just know I had this impression about it was God was giving me a lifeline out of this pit of self-pity that I had dug for myself. I had dug myself way down there and there was no ladder, but God was throwing down a rope saying, if you will start to just be grateful to me and you will look for things to be thankful for, not thankful for cancer, but thankful in your situation, you're going to be able to get out of this. After you had that conversation with your pastor and you felt like God speak to you and throw you the lifeline from there, you every day would write down things that you were grateful for? Yes. <laughs> I started um now and it wasn't it wasn't like really organized at first. It was just like I began writing little things I was grateful for and I started to look around and I honestly I would go, oh my goodness, there are a lot of things I have to be grateful for. As he's declining, I'm just like, but I'm still grateful that he can still talk to me. You know, I can still like we still have this time to sort out some of this stuff and just grateful for my church, grateful for my, my family was such a wonderful support. My, my parents, my, my sister, it just like, just, there's so much that I found to be grateful for. It was almost like I couldn't even believe how many things were good when I started to look for them. Would you be willing to read the entry? Oh Yeah. Just think that's so powerful going back in time to Nancy at that moment. It's in here. So it's a record. It's 1990. Do you still (laughs) keep a journal? I do. I love that. I think it's so amazing. I wrote this on March 3rd, 1993, about two weeks after my husband died about self-pity. I began to realize how powerful my role was that my attitude could make or break my marriage. The self-pity and selfishness are the killers of marriage. A lesson about self-pity burned so strongly in my heart. I was actually deathly afraid of self-pity more than I was afraid of death. I wouldn't want to ever entertain it again, not even for a moment. When people would try to put self-pity on me, I would counter it with a response like, God is good. He's going to take care of me. I, I, I just, that's what it says right there. That's incredible. And I did start to just say, God, I can't change the situation, but I can change my attitude. And let's just see what you're going to do. Cause apparently you have a different plan than I had. And maybe you're in control. <laughs> yeah. He is control he is in control but anyway it gave me so much peace so from that day I began to be able to just now I'm not going to diminish the grief and the stress of it. it I still needed a lot of help I still 
had days. But from walking through that, then I could go through the next couple months, which were getting really intense. You know, the bone marrow transplant actually was successful, but then his body took a turn for the worse. And all of his organs began shutting down. Like they had just been overwhelmed with the radiation and the chemo. And he was just like, it wasn't, he wasn't able to rally. And I was able to talk to him because I had already, like I had it, they, you know, gone, okay, God, the worst case scenario might happen, but you're still, God's still there. So Dave was like, you're not going to have a nervous breakdown. You're going to be fine. Tell me you're going to be fine, Nancy. I'm like, I'm going to be fine. I was like, what do you, what do you, do you want to name your baby? He named our son. Just like all, just like, I was like, what would you want me to tell the kids? What do you want me to, you know, what are your, what are your wishes? We had all this precious time Mm. at the very end because we weren't afraid to face whatever life was going to throw at us. So at the end of his life, you had this time with him and how many months pregnant were you? He, he died on February 13th in 1992, and I was about eight months pregnant. And my our son was born um, in April, just a couple months later. Were you aware the day that he died that it was going to be his last day? Yes. I remember the week that he was getting, um, it, it was the week that he was just, just really um, taking a turn for the worse. And the... I just remember praying, God, if, you know, if it's time, let him be okay with it. Let me be okay with it. And I was, I remember it was a Saturday night. It was like 10 o'clock at night when the doctors called and they said he passed away. My mom was with me, but I was really, I was at peace. I was really sad, grief, alone, but this peace was so real in my heart at the same time. Wow. And the next day I went to church <laughs> and we had revival that week. And I think I went to church every night. <laughs> I don't remember if it wow. was if single night, if it was all the way till Thursday, but I think I went every night because I just went, where else am I going to go? Sure. And, um, and God really helped us. The miracle here for everybody listening is that somehow you were okay. And I don't want to minimize what, what you went through. So just, just walk me through that. So you, you have this grief, but it's married with this peace that it's going to be okay. Can you tell us more about that? And then just in the days to come, your young mom, you have a three-year-old, a baby that's going to be born in four weeks. I'm going to ask all the questions that I'm sure a listener are asking. What are you doing to pay the bills? How are you doing emotionally? How are you talking to your little, it was a little girl that you had already, right? Your daughter was first. How are you talking to her about her father passing away? How was she doing? Can you just give us an overview of all those things that was going on for you? Yes. Oh boy. So first of all, emotionally, this was the part that was so striking for me because God had given me this wonderful key of thankfulness like this. I know it sounds so trite, right? I mean, there's books about it now, like attitude of gratitude. Um, It's on your coffee mug, but this was so real to me. It was just like, it's not a cliche. It was like my life. 
So because of the thankful thing, I my here's my emotional state, Melissa. When I'm 18, 19, I'm like having a nervous breakdown over nothing. <laughs> Taking every drug known to man because I can't cope with what? Homework? I'm not really sure. But now I'm go now I'm go now I'm beginning to grieve the loss of my husband. I'm about to be a single mom and I'm about to have a baby. And I have no need for any any medication. Like that to me is a miracle. That's a document. That is a miracle. miracle. Yeah. Like here I before I was seeing a psychiatrist because I just couldn't like handle I don't even know when I was 18, what were the stresses in my life? Now I have real actual financial ruin. I have, I have, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I have, I'm a widow. My poor husband, like the bills were unsurmountable that he left me with. I'm just saying, and I've got, you know, a lot of things on my plate and I have, I didn't even need a drink of wine. Like, I just can't believe that. Cause I was an alcoholic and here I am just, Jesus is going to help us. So to me, that's just like my emotional thing was this is the prescription I'm taking is Jesus telling me to just look to him and be thankful and keep just saying he's going to take care of me. And I, I did go to my pastor after my husband died and I said, I've never done this before. How, how do you say this to your daughter? Like, how do I, how am I going to explain this? And he gave so much wisdom. He said, however you handle this is how your daughter's going to mirror this. So if you say, God's going to help us, he's going to take care of us, that's what she's going to go with. If you say this is the worst thing that's ever happened and it's terrible and it's going to be pretty hard for your kids. So that was really good advice. And I, I really tried to keep my words full of faith because I know that your words are really powerful. And then financially, there were so many miracles, again, not overnight, not not minimizing that there were bill collectors calling me and all sorts of stuff. I didn't Where have a job. living at the time? So we had, um, God had opened a door in this beautiful neighborhood in a, we were renting a beautiful house that when he was sick, Actually, it was a, a one of the uh, a cancer specialists from I believe somewhere in Boston um, had a rental property and she had opened it up to us at a very reduced rent. This house, a house like right near the beach, and I have that house still. So she she understood what we were going through as a family. So she took this reduced rent, and then at that time, a community group had heard about my situation, so they began. They stepped up and they said, we want to help supplement your rent. My, my husband's brother had been a limo driver for um, a part-time job. And one of the people, the, the family that he drove in the limo asked him after he had donated his, his bone marrow, they're like, how's your brother? And he's like, well, it's not good. So this millionaire couple that just would visit a few weeks in the summer started to pay my rent. Oh they my just gosh. wanted to just, okay. just do this. I, I want to get the story behind the story. So he mentioned in passing to this couple that his brother was dying of cancer or, or getting a bone marrow transplant. They ask him about it. He tells them, had he passed away when he, when he told them? Did... I think before um, he passed away, because he was the perfect match for the donation of the bone I marrow. I see. Okay. 
he was sharing with them whenever he would drive them. Like that wasn't his main job, but he did it on the weekends actually for fun. And so as it happened, this is a couple that he drives a lot because he knows them. And um, he would always tell them this, what was going on with his brother. And so at first they did it anonymously. He just said to me, somebody wants to help. And they started just dumping money on me. Oh, but wow. then after my husband died, they, then he approached me and he said, and I still had never met them. He approached me and he said, that couple wants to begin to, you know, help you with your rent. And then finally he just said, they just want to pay your rent indefinitely. Wow. And indefinitely meaning indefinitely. Yeah. They paid it until I got married again. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Isn't that crazy? That is amazing. So as I'm thanking God, I'm going, and then God is just like, I can't even keep up with thanking him now. Like there's just too many things I was thanking him for. I'm like, oh my gosh. So you have a house by the beach that's already a reduced rent, but you yeah. still need, you're still in need. You're, you have a three-year-old and baby. What I think is incredible and what I see as a trend is when we're documenting miracles of intervention, God uses, he uses other people that will just be obedient to him. He'll drop it on their heart to do this right. for this person. And it's, it's an absolute miracle. Right. It is. That's it crazy. Is. So they pay your rent until you get married again, which that, that's a little spoiler alert too. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Wow. Okay. So tell me, tell me more. So that, that happens, but rent is not groceries. It's not, um, True. medical bills. It's not all the other things. So you're as a brand, I'm just curious, are you feeling the, the pressure to, to provide as far as like, did you feel like you needed to get a job? Yes. At first, of course I was, I was like, I must get a job, but there were just so many things at that moment to handle. Like, course, like again, yeah. trying to square away our finances, trying, I mean, the bills that were coming in, trying to, it's so hard when someone dies. It's like a lot of, I don't want to say it like this. It's a lot of work. You have to get copies of the death certificates. You have to notify all of the creditors. You have to notify all, every kind of legal institution. You know, you have to credit cards, everything. You have to like do a lot of homework when yes. somebody dies. Yes. You have to, you know, not, I'm not uh, above and beyond just the regular funeral prep and burial and all those things. You have to do all these things. Yes. So I was very busy. And you um, had four weeks until your second baby was born, right? Right. So I didn't think it was probably the best to just run out and get a job that Yeah, absolutely. Week. <laughs> sure. I, but, and I was really, really praying. I just said, God, I, I would, I would love to be able to give my, my kids just lost their dad. It would be really cool if they didn't have to lose me too. Yes. It, you know, it right away, it would be really cool. And, um, and so, yeah, so initially we were, we were on food stamps and, um, then I, then I uh, had a, a friend from church. She, Jackie, she wanted to come and stay. And so she paid rent to me and then she was almost like a live in nanny too. So that was a really, really cool thing. From and church. this is, and she, is a friend from the church there in Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. So that just helped me that I wasn't the only person in the house all yes. the time. Cause you know, they're just, just a, that was a comfort. 
a really cool thing was I had been painting furniture during while I was, you know, raising my baby girl before. And just little furniture was in some galleries. And uh, somehow one of the Kennedys had seen one of these pieces. And during this time, when I was um, a widow, the I think I think my my son had been born, but one of the Kennedys called me and they said, we want you to come to the Kennedy compound and paint. We want you to paint on site something for for the house. And so I I just started to go. Okay, wait, the- let's let's talk about this a little bit more. So you would paint furniture. What kind of fur- what kind of furniture would you paint? So back then, that was, again, that's just the early 90s. So there were galleries that would, um, I would paint dressers. I would get an old antique dresser, and then I would paint this whole beach scene on the front and maybe put, like, different colors, like, just really, really beachy and summery and happy. Ocean, clouds, just all sorts of stuff. And then that would be, there were about, I think, two galleries that I put those things in. And And how would you get them into the gallery? One of the cool thing is that neighborhood, it, as it happened, I'm in this neighborhood near the beach and I met a lady, one of my neighbors was also a widow and she had a gallery. She was a famous artist and she had her own gallery. So she said, hey, I can put some of your things in my gallery. So, cool. so that was one way that that happened. Sure. Just coincidence. Okay. So you're, you're saying it like all offhanded, the Kennedys saw my piece. So you're talking about the Kennedys. They yes. saw one of your pieces, and how did they get your phone number from the person I, in charge? I think so, because I remember back then we had um, an answering machine, and I came home that day, and I pushed the button on my answering machine, and it was Ethel Kennedy. She said, hello, this is Ethel Kennedy. Did you think it was a prank at first? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I just kept playing it, because I was like, I... I so, just, so what did the voicemail say? Sorry, I interrupted you. She said, I... I've seen some of your work and I would like you to come and paint a dresser for me. Um, Could you call me back and we could talk about the detail. So I saved that little, they were little tiny cassettes that you had in your, I'm aging myself. I saved that for a really long time. But then I went to her house and I sat and we had tea and she discussed kind of the look she was going for. And it was a very cool adventure. And you're on site. Yeah. That's neat. There's the ocean. There's the tennis court. There's oh Jackie Onassis' house. Yeah, they're all there in That's the little crazy. Tree. That's very cool. So you have this millionaire paying your rent. You are painting furniture. Did you continue to paint furniture? Is that? I did. I did. I painted um, because back then you could get really an outstanding amount of money for one big long sideboard. Like it was a statement piece. Sure. So I did a few more things. And like that's that a for- creative outlet for you too. Right. And yeah. I'm home, you know, somebody spills their Cheerios. I can stop and, you know, fix that. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, so then I was a single mom of two babies and I was finding that God was making a way that I didn't have to go get a regular kind of nine to five. It almost seems like as you're being grateful to God, he just keeps dumping things onto you. Like, just like you would as a a father or mother. When my kids are grateful, when my son is grateful, it just makes me want to do more and more and more for him. Yeah, I felt I just I did feel like I felt like I I was aware that people were watching my life. And I did want to give a lot of glory to him and make sure I was a good testimony because I knew it was a reference point for people. People would say that and I would just think, Oh, I just I, I take I don't take that lightly, that 
people are watching your life. Unsaved people were watching my life. Relatives that didn't know Christ were watching my life. People, and there were newspaper stories that they were writing about me. And I'm like, people are really watching. And I kind of... Tell me about that. A church group that started to help in the beginning, they did a story so that they could actually raise funds for to be able to help other families. So they said, hey, do you mind if we do a story about you? And then as a follow-up, I wanted to do another story. I was like, after God did so much, I said, I God to, to be able to get glory from like bigger places. You know, not just a couple of friends that I was able to tell what he was doing. So the newspaper came and did another story after some of these miracles were happening. It was the Cape Cod Times. Do you have that article? I do. I think I have that article. Yes, I do. We would love can... to, to see a picture okay. of that. That'd be so cool. I remember you you saying that your, your pastor gave you some advice. Did it work with your daughter? Would she have would she have moments? Can you just for any listener who's listening to it, and you've said this several times, you don't want to minimize the grief. And there's no there's no shame in, in grief, but it was like this decision that you made to just set your mind that God was going to take care of you and, and bring yourself. Was there ever a moment when you were having a really, really hard day and you had to, um, to like realign yourself with that? Like, would you go back and read your gratitude journal? Yeah, I definitely, definitely did. I, I felt like that that was always a reset for me. Like it was my journal prompt to, to say, what are you grateful for? Just a couple of things that you haven't been grateful for before that, that it would always be a reset for me. And cause there, there, I remember battling some feelings of just fear and, and afraid that how are my kids going to turn out? They don't have a dad feelings of just concern. Just so I would, I would journal that. I, I, I write a lot of my prayers out and I began to, I really actually began to pray the word of God over my, my, my life. It must have happened during when my husband was dying. I, I came across Isaiah 54. There's a promise in there. It says, you, you know, that thy maker is thy husband. So God is your husband. And he'll cause you to forget the reproach of your widowhood. He doesn't mean you're going to forget your widowhood. Like, oh, I didn't even remember I'm a widow. But the sting of it, the shame of it, the rejection or the feeling of loss of it, like it doesn't sting the same. And I, I began to claim that promise. Like if the car would break, I'd be like, Lord, remember you said you were my husband? You need to fix that. Right? <laughs> That's amazing. But, but yeah, those, those are real things, like really mm. like, you know, tears. And then there's promises. Isaiah 54 is just like pure gold. There are promises for my children in that chapter that all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be the peace of your children. That's in that same chapter. Like I would say, God, really, somehow my children are going to have great peace. I, I don't really see the future, how that's going to play out. But that's when I probably might have started praying some of the word of God over my life and my kids. Because the Bible is not trying to say that everything's perfect. There is a lot of grief in the Bible. There's a lot of things that did not turn out right and things that did not work out easily for people. There are, you know, Ruth was this widow and, and, and Job lost his kids and it's just horrible things happen. And there are terrible unforeseen things, even things we bring on ourselves sometimes, but God is still drawn to 
our hearts being really, really honest and open to him. He's just, he just wants to be invited into the, all those places of mess and brokenness. And that's what I, I started to feel like. It was okay that I, I was broken. It was okay that I didn't know how to proceed here. It was okay to be really honest with God. And, and he, was, he just met me every time, every time. How did you meet your husband? I met I met Jeff after uh, I got involved with a boot camp that we were putting on for the kids. It was a youth camp. He they were they were drawing um, different help from different churches in our fellowship, and he was a volunteer at the camp. And also, I had I had heard about him before. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> I didn't go to boot camp because I knew he was going to be there. I was already going to go, but it didn't hurt that I knew that he was going to be there. <laughs> I had seen him before. Okay. We had actually met before. He was crazy when I first met him. I first met him when I was about to get married the first time. He was a new convert coming to a conference, and I was checking people in with my friend Carrie. And we met him, and he was like, oh, Lord, that guy is crazy. Why was he crazy? Um, he had just, just, just gotten saved. Oh, and he wow. had been from the woods. He had been in a psych center. And he, I, I didn't look at him like, oh, he's cute. I was like, ooh, <laughs> he's frightening. But then, so now years have passed, right? So he's growing in God. And I didn't know, you know, all of his, I didn't really know him. I just had sure. seen him. So then years had gone by and he was really saved and he was, really really fruitful he was really on fire for god he was he was he was a great guy i had heard that he just had like a really powerful transformation his testimony was was solid pastor bannett ron bannett and kathy would say that they set us up at that camp (laughs) jeff what are you going to do about nancy it, we were like, we're working at this boot camp. We're not focusing on dating. We're not here to find a spouse. Um, both of us were pretty really focused. Sure. But it was it was like just a little a little bird told me that maybe there might be a little interest there. So at the end of the boot camp, he did ask me for my number, and we began talking long distance. We were pen pals. Okay. Oh, do you have some of those letters too? All, all of those letters because we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. Yeah. A handwritten letter phones. is so special these days. Yeah. And a fa- and faxes. We would fax each other because that was more instant. You didn't have to wait for the mailman oh, to deliver it yeah. right away. So we did that sometimes. Oh, my lot. gosh. That's adorable. So you'd actually write it out and then fax it to him? Yes. I truly loved the long distance dating because we really tuned into each other's I mean, we rarely went on a date. We rarely were even in the same state. So we would tune into each other's voice and into each other's feelings and heart. Like we had lots of heart-to-heart talks. We we could just pick up on just a, in the tone of your voice if somebody was going through something. Like it was just a cool way to connect. This is this is backtracking just a little bit, but did you have a moment when you felt like you were ready to to remarry? Again, that's something I talked to my pastor about. I was really honest with my pastor. I have, I, I just really went, I, I can't. I'm, Thank God I'm not, for a pastor. Right? And it can't, I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to pretend because that's where my help is going to come from. Through. I always said, God, speak to me through him. 
like whatever I'm going to him, but I'm not going to a man. I'm asking actually for you to just really give me direction or guidance through this man. I didn't take it lightly that I had that really great resource. So I would talk to him and, and, and at one point he did say, you know, you're not, you're not ready right now. It was probably a good year and maybe a year and more that it took before I did have that conversation with Dave. That was a really courageous, cool conversation that we had in the hospital. Like if you did die, what would you want? Would you want me to marry? So would you want your kids to have a, a different dad? We had that conversation. It was so cool. It was so healing yeah. that he was able to go, yes, I definitely want your, my kids to have a dad. So you're, you're released. I, I release yes. you. This. Yes. You don't feel like there's some sort of betrayal there if you move on. How long after you started dating did you know that you wanted to marry him? Well, I don't know why, but I felt like the first week. Wow. I mean, I can't even why i don't know if it was just i had a prayer list in my journal oh my of what gosh. i was praying for and he was just checked all the boxes can you <laughs> so, read us the list i you literally have documented this this is amazing oh, to me i do i do have it i think it's in this one this okay. little one i did pray that he would love books prayed that he would be a soul winner prayed that he liked to fellowship that he liked to talk, that he liked outdoors. There were things that I didn't tell anyone that he just automatically filled like that. All the, all yes. that little criteria. That's amazing. I love it. We're even both from, we were both born in the same city. How did your, how did your, um, so your daughter would have been like four or five? Yeah, Can actually you we first met him right, right before she was four. I think she was four when she met him. She just thought he was very nice. And she was very, he just thought she was so adorable with her, just her little curly hair. And she's just really special. And they started like a little friendship. They he would write her letters. It was very sweet. And, and just, I have pictures of him holding Shane. I mean, God just provided you another husband. That's amazing. It was cool. We had an, another baby. We had our son two years later, our third child. And that just was it was just like, I, I just was so grateful. I was just so grateful because Jeffrey never was their stepdad. He never said, these are my adopted kids or anything like that. They were just always his kids. Wow. He did the legal name change thing. And we just, we kept their original last name in their birth certificate in the way that we changed their name, but then just added another name. So it's cool because I was adopted. So I had an extra dad that was like, so it wasn't just like this perfect and Jeffrey also was adopted, you know, and he had a, oh, he, another. Oh, that's right. So we so you had that like in common too. We did. So when our kids would be like, sometimes they'd be like, you're not my real dad. That might have happened once or twice. <laughs> we'd be like, yep, yeah, none of us have our real dads. So whatever. Two main takeaways. I feel like what God was really trying to challenge me. He was bringing, he was allowing a really hard trial in my life but I think he was helping me to shift my security, not on what God is doing, but on who he is. And since that time, many times I've, I've had to reference that and say, it doesn't matter what I see. It doesn't matter what, what is happening or what isn't happening. It matters who God is. And, and it just, it just continually is 
somewhere I can draw strength from is who is God, the character of God. And along the lines of that word, who, the second thing was something that I, a big takeaway for me always was something that um, Mona had encouraged me. She said way back in the beginning, she said, you know, you, you can, you might ask God, why am I going through this? But a better question maybe isn't why, but who can I help? Like who else maybe has it worse than me? Focusing the, shifting the focus from myself outward to others. And I began to see that there are always people that have needs around you. Even if you're going through something really, really hard, there are people that actually have it worse. And by helping them and letting God's, just God's love for them come through you, it just really, really helps you, even in the midst of going through something difficult. That was a, that was just really, it's always been helpful to me that sometimes you're going through something really horrible, but because you're going to use that later and you're actually going to be grateful that you have that skill set to help somebody else down the road. It's, it's not ever wasted and, and just don't quit. He's not done. And now it's documented.